Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. With over 20 years of business experience, Carl Gomez is a very well-known Canadian economist and a very respected investment professional specializing in real estate. Carl was formerly the Senior Vice President of Research and Strategy at Quad Real Property Group, where he oversaw portfolio strategy, research, and strategic market analysis from both the fundamental and the capital markets perspective. His experience as an economist covers a range of roles, including Chief Economist of Bental Kennedy and Senior Economist position specializing in real estate and financial market analysis at TD Bank Group, the Royal Bank, and CMHC. Today, Carl joins me as we discuss the future and potential impact of COVID on the real estate market and the economy in general. We do our best today to break down the many factors which may affect us as real estate investors, as rental housing providers, and as well as business owners. So listen in and enjoy. Carl Gomez, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast, and so great to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Patrick. Great to be here. Now, Carl, you have been on the rain stage many times over the years. Uh, You're economist extraordinaire, one of our favorite economists because of your ability to speak and uh, you know from stage and entertain the crowds and uh, do it in an entertaining way, not like you're uh, telling great jokes up there, although you are pretty <laughs> funny sometimes. So, uh, Carl, for the listeners that don't know you, um, what can you give me, you know, if somebody walks up and says, Carl Gomez, what do you do? What What's your answer? Sure. I guess the elevator uh, speech is that basically I am a real estate economist and investment strategist. I've uh, been doing that for over 20 years. I uh, worked both in the private and public sector in various capacities, looking at economics and the impact of economics on real estate and real estate investments. 
And you know, when I talk about real estate, it's, it's both the residential and commercial markets. So I have a very strong passion for real estate and specifically how to link economics and macroeconomics to, to real estate to ultimately drive you know, the best investment performance that you can out of those t- type of assets. Well, perfect. Well, we're definitely have to be talking about some uh, econ- <laughs> real estate and the economics of what's going on these days, uh, given COVID. And, and so, and I also want to, you know, learn a little bit about your, you know, your own journey. Uh, I mean, ultimately, as much as you're an economist, you're uh, a husband, a father, a son, you're all the things you are in life, and you've had quite the journey and, and quite a, uh, an amazing track record in what you do. So, Tell me a little bit about your journey right now, because today, as you sit here as an economist in the world of specifically in the world of real estate, give me a little bit of your background, because 20 years is a, a big span of time. And just give me a little bit of your background in terms of where you started and, and kind of where you are today. Well, I, you know, after grad school, I went to grad school actually out west in B.C., and when I finished grad school out in BC, I actually started work with a couple of consulting companies and in, in a few other places. My first real job, actually, and this is kind of a full circle job, was with BCIMC, uh, the pension plan in British Columbia and Victoria. And I worked with a group there that was just starting to invest in real estate. It was 1996. Real estate as an institutional asset class was very new. And I worked there for a little bit and, you know, moved on uh, to some other gigs in Vancouver. And one of the things that I ended up doing when I was in Vancouver was I became the BC regional economist for CMHC and had a great opportunity to understand the Vancouver housing market and travel around BC and understand the importance of mortgage loan insurance and, and how that drives, you know, investment and in, in demand in, in the housing market. Uh, and so, you know, I spent some time there working in, in BC and, you know, I have a lot of connections back in Toronto. I'm originally a Toronto guy, uh, and I was living on the West coast and I, I touched base with a few people on Bay street and this is, you know, going back 22 odd years. And, uh, you know, we talked about it and I was offered a job on Bay street, uh, with RBC economics. And I thought, you know, this would be great. Get get onto Bay Street, you know, where the action is, you know, to be be on the biggest trading floor in Canada. So I went there and, you know, it was was a fantastic, phenomenal experience to kind of sit inside of the vortex of capital markets and interest rate decisions and, you know, money changing hands and understanding that. But the one thing for me as as an economist is I always wanted to keep one foot in real estate. And there was an opportunity to develop a real estate um, report called uh, the Housing Affordability Report. And uh, I put that together. It was an indicator of you know, how affordable things are across the country in various cities for, for, for housing. And uh, I know our, our, our RAIN members are familiar with that, uh, that report. And it's one that I took really great pride in. And it, you know, it was really a, a signature piece for me. Things change after a while, and I moved on to TD Bank Economics, and you know worked there as well on the fixed income side and currency, but also did some stuff on real estate on the side. But I think the big turning point for me was back in 2006 when I got a call uh, because there was a position there to head research for for a, a real estate investment management company called Bentall Kennedy. At the time, they were called Bentall Capital. I mean, they're they're well known. They're big. They're a big deal. They were, yeah, and they still are, actually. They've gone through a lot of transitions. But I came in there and uh, started up a research program for them, helped them out with acquisitions and strategy and developing, you know, basically an institutionalized but well-researched platform for, for investing. And, and I think that was, you know, the expertise that I always tried to bring was 
it's not all about the gut. It's not all about, you know, just what feels right. It's about putting some fundamentals on, on your real estate investments and understanding what fundamentally drives it so that you have a sound thesis behind it. And that's something I brought to the table and their investors really appreciated that. And, and I guess over time, you know, I was there for, you know, almost, uh, I guess, 11 years. I moved forward as a partner in that company and became their chief economist and really enjoyed my time there working with a number of institutional investors, you know, traveling around the country, across the world, actually, for a while, you know, talking to investors about real estate and Canadian real estate and what drives it. Uh, you know, why invest in Canada was a very big thesis that, that I helped to drive at Bentall. And, you know, as time changed, you know, the company grew bigger and you know, it was acquired by Sun Life. And uh, there were some changes afoot and I was asked to, to, to move forward to a new company called Quadrail. And Quadrail Property Group was the investment manager specifically for BCIMC. Now, you see a full circle story here because my career started at BCIMC and all of a sudden I'm at this company that is a subsidiary of BCIMC. And, and I worked there for you know, about three and a half years, basically doing research and strategy, helping with portfolio modeling and things like that. But I recently, and this was in early May, actually resigned. And part of the reason why is because I'm a people person. Uh, I enjoy working with investors and clients and, you know, being out and talking to people like yourselves and everybody else. And unfortunately, the position that, that, that I was in at Quadrille was very insular. It was very directed inside towards just BCIMC. And, and while that was rewarding and interesting, I, I felt like there was a bit of a deficiency in what I was doing and, and the skill set that I brought to the table. So uh, yeah, I left the company right in the middle of a pandemic, which is kind of interesting. But it actually is, as an economist, it's an interesting time to do that because there's a lot more runway now for me to be able to go out and talk and you know talk to you guys and talk to other people about what's happening in the economy and how it affects real estate without having to feel, I guess, where I could compromise my my allegiance to a company. So... Well, I'm excited about it because, you know, here's the fundamental is that, you know, I've, I've had Dr. Sherry Cooper on and I've had other, you know, Gary Morris, I've had other individuals talk, but they're, they, you know, they are a little restricted in what they can say. I, I think there's a, you know, they're, you know, within the companies that they represent or economists, you know, I don't care if it's Benjamin Tall. I, I mean, I, I see what Benjamin Tall is saying these days, and we're going to talk about economy and, and kind sure. of our view of the world. But, you know, I look at even uh, Benjamin Tall, my belief is, is that, and, and it's not a criticism, actually. It's, it's, I see where he has to be responsible around it. But I, I think he's being very guarded of what, what he sees in the future. I think, you know, he's not really going to get out into mainstream public or mainstream media of yeah. a view that, that will put people into, you know, a, a big nervous reaction. Because guys like that can really take away consumer confidence. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about working as a bank economist, and, and I, I work there and can kind of say, you know, as much as you are an economist, you're also setting up a position for the banks. Mm -hmm. And you have a responsibility when you're marketing to market, you know, the bank's representation there. And, you know, you got to think about the economy being very tied to how bank profitability is and everything else. So you, you do have to be a little cautious about what you say and, and how it's positioned when you're doing that. And that's no different than any organization. If you're attached to an organization, you have to be uh, responsible about what you're saying and what you're doing. But, but I do feel sometimes with the banks, particularly the banks, they are, as, as a bank, former bank economist, sometimes their position becomes mostly first marketing and, and taking an angle and spinning it a little bit 
before actually giving you the, the truth or, the, or, or the, 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 the straight up views. And, you know, when pressed with a bank economist and, the, you know, they give you their consensus views, what I, where I found, find them most interesting is their, their second off or their, their alternative scenarios and what probabilities they attach to those alternative scenarios. Because I think with inside the, these alternative scenarios is perhaps a little bit more of the truth, whereas their, their, their forecast or their main forecast is a middle ground that, that doesn't get you too far from here or there. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, sometimes it's a little bit vanilla in in the in scope, you know. So and I, and like, once again, I'm not even suggesting that that is uh, a, I should be critical of that. It's just that you know, and of course with rain, you know, uh, you know, for as many years as we have, we've always talked about what's behind the curtain. You know, when we yeah. when we look yeah. at what the economic fundamentals are, what the headlines are, and it doesn't matter where the headlines come from. What is behind those headlines? What is the agenda of the person that's stating it? And what does it mean? As real estate investors, of course, we want we just want to get down to what we see as the truth. You know, and, and one right. of the great things about having you on the stage over the years is that you speak to the economic fundamentals. It really takes a lot of the emotion out of it and really gives us the tools we need to make decisions in looking at the future of real estate, where it's going and understanding the impact of something like COVID or uh, changes to the uh, landlord tenant. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. acts. I remember when Toronto. You were actually on our stage in Toronto, and I don't, I don't know who you would you have been with, because like, that was like I want to say that was four years, five years ago. Gosh, could have been even. I probably was at Bentall. I, yeah. I don't think we we kind of done anything together since I was a quadrille. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but weren't you? But I, I want to say that you, you were actually. They were about to pump about, I don't know, like a billion dollars into Toronto, and mm-hmm. when they made those changes to the landlord tenant rules they went we're out like the, they yeah. actually pulled that money off the table and went good luck guys we're out of here because yeah. it couldn't yeah. make it yeah. wouldn't make sense yeah yeah exactly i mean you know that that's the thing right it's it's kind of interesting where all of a sudden you have these sort of developments and things that really materially have an impact on how your investments do and it, and it happens all of a sudden you know, and it can hit you like a blindside. And I think that's what this pandemic is too, right? I mean, nobody knows exactly what's happening inside of this, but it but it blindsides everybody. Yeah, you know, as rental housing providers, you know, those kind of moves by the government, uh, those kind of moves by, you know, big banks, so CMHC, we can talk about that here shortly. But I mean, ultimately, we're frustrated because we see a picture called, well, they're, you know, they're talking about, well, there isn't enough affordable housing and we're not looking after tenants the right way. And there's a seems to be a disconnect from the reality of what it takes to be a real estate investor and the math behind it, the economics behind it. Uh, so it leaves us very frustrated sometimes, to say sure. the very least. And I mean, you look at what that particular move did when and, and they weren't the only ones. I mean, there was a lot of money pulled off the table at that time. And mm-hmm. those are the kind of things that are incredibly frustrating as a rental housing provider, because it's like. Can the government not see what the hell they're doing? You know, that's and that's right. when politics plays trump card over policy, you know, and, you know, their vote getting and and very well, frustrating in that world. I, I think a little bit of that, though, is also who's got the loudest voice for the constituency that you're you're pandering to. Right? Sure. So, you know, if the big picture is that, you know, rents are too high. Uh, we need to control that. And, you know, it's not about providing supply and helping to balance the market in a market perspective to keep rents at a certain place. 
then then that narrative comes forward, right? So yeah. it, it's it's highly charged. I mean, the the rent the whole rent control narrative. You know, you go to unaffordable cities like Vancouver or Toronto, but even if you go in the U.S., it, it, it's the same story. There's a bipartisan sort of pandering to different political groups. It's highly charged. Less of the facts are there, and and that's what kind of drives the narrative in those things. Well, you know, in the spirit of what we, you know, what Rain is all about, in the spirit of who you are and what you talk about as an economist, you know, let's talk about what's going on economically to the degree we can, you know, figure what the hell and, you know, unravel this this mess and, you know, put some pieces of the puzzle together. And when we look at COVID and what's happening today as real estate investors, as business owners, we can cover, you know, really that gambit of, of all of those conversations. So, as you sit here today and you look at Canada, let's talk about Canada. We can talk sure. into the U.S. because I know that you have some interest in that area. Sure. But let's talk about Canada. You know, we're real estate investors. What the hell? Should we sell everything, head for the hills, run? Or are we <laughs> looking for some cool opportunities that are we, we start to see in the emerging future? I see opportunities emerging in the future, and it's not going to be easy. And I think we got to be a little bit patient around some stuff. But I see, you know, as the future emerges, opportunities. But listen, that's me. You're the economist. What do we do? Well, you know, one thing I will just say, you know, looking at the broad market right now, let's call it the resale market as an indicator of generally what's happening in the real estate market. Things have really, like everything else, been affected by social distancing in the pandemic. Sales have stopped. They've slowed down. Listings have stopped simultaneously as well. People are not listing their homes nearly as much. And so while you've had these big drops in sales, the balance between sales and listings has basically kept the same. And as a result, we haven't really seen a you know, precipitous drop in, in house prices anywhere. There, there really hasn't been pockets of distress that are out there that are forcing people to sell. So I think from that perspective, it, it's, it's a very balanced, you know, it's, it's not a crazy sort of market or anything like that. It's, it's a rational response to not having people in your homes. But the question then becomes, okay, how long do we have this going for? Because I know in BC, you know, some of the social distancing is lifting and people are starting to go out and look at homes. You know, there's virtual ways of selling and things like that. In Ontario, we're still not quite there yet, at least in the GTA. But but these things will start to lift over time. And, and I, I assume that the volumes and the levels will start to move up. But the real question, I think, is what happens after? And you have to look at some leading indicators of the housing market to kind of understand what may potentially happen. And two things that, that I see, which could be interesting, is one, there's a number of mortgage deferrals happening uh, that, that a lot of sellers are, or homeowners are taking up. Um, there's not, I believe the figure was like 900,000 mortgages are on deferral with the banks. Now they're on deferral because maybe people can't make their mortgage payments. And the reason why is when you look at unemployment, unemployment has skyrocketed in Canada. It's gone up to 13, 14%. There was some good news that actually happened last week in, in terms of the unemployment numbers. But, you know, there is some, some stress in, in the labor markets. And when people are stressed, their incomes aren't there, you know, and they can't make their mortgage payments because they're deferring it, these deferrals could turn into mortgages and arrears. And that's when you start to have forced selling and these properties have to come on the market and they may, may be lower than, than what their value is. And then all lo and behold, there's opportunities there to kind of find, you know, properties that may be selling below their market value. From an opportunistic standpoint, I think that's a, that's a risk that could happen. 
To me, though, there are two caveats against why that might be not be the case, that there may be glowing opportunities to find a lot of distressed properties and lower prices. The first factor is that where a lot of the job distress is actually happening is mainly in occupations that, that people who don't actually own homes uh, are. So, you know, frontline restaurant workers, service workers, things like that. So many of these people may not actually own homes and maybe just in between period of time between getting back on the on the job case again. So, you know, that stress in the labor market, unlike, you know, a lot of these analogies about the Great Depression and stuff like that, this is a, a you know, a shock, uh, an economic stoppage, but there's propensity for them to go back to work. So that's the first part. The second part, and I think this is the, the more interesting part, is that there's a wall of money out there. You know, the central banks have dropped interest rates dramatically. Uh, we have very, very low mortgage rates right now, particularly on the on the short end of the spectrum. I personally don't believe interest rates are going any higher anytime soon. Uh, in fact, if anything, they're going to remain this way for, I would say, years to come. And that's provided ample capital for people looking for opportunities. So when you have those two factors lining up, my, my general view is that the distress that might create you know, opportunistic sort of buying may not necessarily unravel that way. That being said, there are always going to be pockets of that. And as a shrewd investor, you have to kind of look and, you know, pick, pick, your, pick your battles. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to become a very regional thing. We can't paint the whole country with, you know, one brush, which is we've said that many times. It becomes very regional when you look at not only province, but, uh, you know, cities and what cities will make more sense. I think you make a really good point around the unemployment because unemployment and GDP growth. I mean, GDP drives employment and we have to look at GDP. So yeah. can I give you my view? Because I would like you to have an assessment uh, of my view. Right. Like these are yeah. just questions. Right. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I'm not an economist, but I do a lot of research uh, to the degree that I can get information. Now, you probably have access to way more information than than I do. And of course, Jennifer and our vice president of research does an amazing job with the research team of digging into things. And so this is kind of me, how I do it. Uh, on the sidelines, so to speak. But I look at, you know, I think you make a really good point on the unemployment. Uh, I think there's a lot of those service jobs, those retail jobs, service jobs, whether it be restaurants or hotels, that kind of thing that are really the at the front end uh, or the front of what's driving unemployment. Having said that, yeah. you get into Alberta in the oil and gas industry, eh, not so much. You know, there's, yeah. well, that too on top of. So I think, and, and when we talk about a 13 or 14% unemployment rate, I think we know it's all, it's quite understated given the number of solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, small business owners that were aren't part of that stat. Right. You know, what I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of businesses shut down that are, I know Edmonton uh, economic development Edmonton, for example, uh, said that they could, they anticipate that as much as 47% of their small businesses in Edmonton could actually not restart. Now, so I don't know if that's just them being, you know, kind of pessimistic. And, and, and of course, whenever that happens, other businesses start to step up, but that's going to take some time to get momentum, uh, you know, innovation, all of the things, you know, that, that happens when these things happen. So, I look at, you know, I'm looking at this and, and saying, you know, first off, we've got deferred mortgages that really aren't going to hit in terms of what we're doing until September-ish, you know, right. yeah. you know, yeah. and then yeah. really that's where we're going to see what's going to happen. We've yeah. got 
CERB that's paying wages that are sometimes in cases they're making more on CERB than they were, you know, but how many, when, how long is CERB going to last? There's actually some conversation that's saying CERB will never run out. This will be a a universal wage world, right? You know, it's like, really? Okay. Well, uh, that could cause, that could be problematic. Uh, It will get votes though. So then the question, you know, that I look at, you know, as I say, Right now, uh, Benjamin Tall used this phrase, which he said, the economy, I think, and I don't want to, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quote, but he, he actually says, you know, the economy's is suspended right now. It's in, it's, it's in that suspension. There's nothing. Yeah, it's in stasis. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. But I look at that, you know, in my mind, I picture that, you know, when you're on a trampoline and you jump, there's that moment of nothing, right? Yeah. There's that split second but you know what gravity does, right? You know right. where you're going. And that's kind of how I picture, you know, that we're going forward. I'm not a doom and gloomer in terms of what I what I see in the future, because right? I do see opportunity. I see innovation. These things always drive innovation. And I think, that, sure. you know, that's just people. You know, I look at yep. the oil industry in Alberta, for example, where, you know, when the oil industry took their first hit, you know, years ago, it was like, there was what I think 13 guys on and I'm just blowing smoke right now because I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say it was 13 guys that were on the rig floor. Mm -hmm. You know, it took 13 guys to run that rig on the floor. You know, now I think it's three and mostly it's remote control. And, you know, some of them are working out of a freaking office while they're drilling oil. Like, I mean, it's crazy. The innovation, the point is, is that that brings the labor market or changes the labor market uh, because now you're looking for more tech savvy engineer type guys to to run an oil rig. Right. I mean, there's still the, you know, you still got to set them up and do all the things. I get that. But the point is, is that that innovation will happen right across the industry or right across the country. But, you know, it's going to be pretty painful, I think for the next, you know, probably till the end of 2020. That's my yeah. view of it. I think you're going to have, I think you're going to have an onslaught of, uh, of mortgages mm-hmm. that come due that people aren't going to pay. I think you're going to have tenants that aren't going to pay, which then is going to put pressure on the landlords. You yeah. know, this, this inability to, to evict a tenant that isn't paying is like just unbelievably ridiculous. I get yeah, it, can't do it. Yeah. But, but I get it, but oh my gosh, you know, how many of those tenants, and it doesn't take a lot that are taking advantage of that. And, and so then landlords are putting their payments on hold that will um, ultimately have to get looked after, but they can't even in Ontario, they can't even get in front of a, a board to evict a tenant, no. you know? Yeah. So it's a yeah. real cluster screw of what's going on. That's how I see it. So Having said all that, I don't know what my point is here, other than, you know, those are there's a lot of factors that we have to take into consideration. Uh, yeah. I'm preparing, and we're, you know, from a rain community point of view, we're saying really pay attention, get liquidity. You're going to have to move with speed as things start to unfold, and there's going to be some great buying opportunities. There's going to be some great uh, opportunities for investors to solve problems for other people. Sure. How's all yeah. that? I hear what you're saying, and you know what? I'm I, I probably very aligned with what you're saying. I mean, one of the things that you know I was wrestling with in, in our company before I left was, you know, we see the downturn being very deep, and Benjamin Tell has talked about it, and you know, his interestingly, his numbers started at a decline of 10% and then went to 20% and then 30% annualized decline, and you know, those, these numbers just shifted. Uh, you know, forget about numbers. Whatever we're seeing in the second and third quarter of this year, it will be very deep declines, you know, it, it, because you shut down the entire economy. 
one of the things that we were wrestling with, how to come back to that, is what kind of recovery will we ultimately mm. see? Mm-hmm. And, you know, interestingly, in Canada, in the first quarter, we actually did have a decline in GDP before the pandemic even started. You know, the economy it was losing momentum to some extent. And where it was losing the most momentum was oil and gas, like you, you were saying. Uh, but also business investment. Uh, business investment has been pretty lethargic in Canada. Productivity growth has been pretty lethargic in Canada. And and most of what was driving the Canadian economy prior to this downturn was real estate and mm-hmm. consumer spending. You know, oh, of course, in exports as well. And we also know about the global trade environment and everything else. But I think the question then becomes, you know, what kind of recovery can we anticipate coming out of this thing? You know, especially... To me, I think anything that's going to get you back to normal has to have to rely on having a a vaccine. And a vaccine to this pandemic, maybe it's a year out, maybe it's 18 months out. Um, It's not going to happen in 2020, probably 2021 at some point. But even when you do have that vaccine and things start to recover, I do think there's a little bit of what what economists call capital destruction happening as, as this downturn has happened. Uh, you know, businesses that that had to shut the door have very little working capital. They've been relying on home equity line of credits or things like that to keep them going. If they don't have the working capital inside of their business, it's not long before they need to shut down. And so whether they can rehire somebody back again or not will take some time. Similarly, you know, for, you know, other businesses that rely on, you know, uh, demand from, from consumers, uh, if consumers aren't spending, that demand starts to come down and their profit margins start to get hit. And, and, and again, this re-intensifies the ability for the economy to bounce back up. Now, to your point, you know, innovation drives business investment. Uh, you have to have entrepreneurial businesses and stuff to be able to go out there and start that. And one of the sad facts about Canada is we've lagged in that, as I mentioned, the productivity and everything else. So coming back to this recovery, I think, you know, it would have been great to see a V-shaped recovery. Uh, and I'm going to use some letter analogies here right mm-hmm. now. And the V-shaped recovery is you have a very swift downturn, but a very swift bounce back up at the end of the year. I think our view and my personal view coming out of this and, and you know, from, from the data that I've seen and the responses that we're seeing from the federal government in terms of plugging holes where the economy is, is that it's not nearly enough um, there's not enough time for, for a vaccine to come here. So we will probably see more of what I would call a U-shaped recovery, where the downturn happens and it takes a little bit longer for it to start coming back up. The risk that I see, because I think that's my base case view, is that we go into something like a W. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so a W is we start to come back and we're seeing that in the job numbers right now. We're actually seeing jobs job numbers up last week. If for May, they were up. They're, they're green shoots that are happening here or there. But as soon as, you know, maybe, you know, call it Ontario, you start to see the infection rate rise again, or they need to shut down things again in September, or, you know, these, these policies are in place that discourage normal sort of business activity to happen because people are just going to rely on, you know, government benefits and things like that you could start to see another downturn again. And so that's where you get that little bit of a W shape. And interestingly, when you look at China and you look at parts of Europe, you're already seeing a little bit of that W shape thing happening. The last risk, and I, I put this down as a lower one, but it, but it is certainly the tail risk in my mind, is, is the Nike swoosh. <laughs> so the, the, the look is one or kind of like an L shape where you go down, but the comeback 
and the improvement in growth takes much, much longer because the drivers aren't there. And so it takes a while to recover that sort of thing. So in that kind of environment, you know, the productive capacity that you've lost in the economy from, from a couple quarters of going down doesn't get gained back for, for another year or maybe another two years. Um, there's, a, there's a big hole, capital destruction in the economy. So that, that's kind of my view and, and where I'm kind of a little concerned about things. Yeah, you know, and 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 those are great insights. And and what I like about it, uh, here's where I align with you. I think it is going to, here's here's my call. I made this call uh, and I'm, I'm sticking by it because I keep doing what I do on the, in the back, you know, on the on the kind of the back end of, of my life. But, you know, when you look at, I look at it at a W with a, that turns into a Nike swoosh. And I, yeah. and the reason I'm using that is, is because I think what's going to happen is the government's going to continue to do what they, and, and I, I, I don't disagree. They're going to need to continue to pump money into the economy, but it'll show, it'll, it'll actually give you some, what I'll call false positives, which is, you know, they're going to celebrate, you know, GDP growth. And well, okay, but it's not really, it's government driven GDP and that yeah. is never sustainable, but yeah. it will, it will drive some optimism and some consumer confidence. Good, good, good. I look at the unemployment numbers that aren't so bad, you know, that, or I shouldn't say aren't so bad that we had some uptick. Great. But it's, you know, it upticked us to 13 and a half percent, like, or it, it brought, you know, it kept us at 13 and a half, which I still believe is an understated number. So I don't want to paint, and I want to, everybody, what, what I'm in this conversation, I got to, I always got to be a little bit careful because I'm not trying to paint doom and gloom. What I want to no. do is paint a picture that says, okay, we're all entrepreneurs, we're investors, we're, we're driven to grow an economy, to be optimistic, to look at what we can do to survive and thrive in, a, in this kind of an economy. So when I look at those, those government numbers, Carl, uh, in terms of what they're pumping into the economy, and then combine that with low interest rates, you know, mm -hmm. uh, they, my concern is this, and I'd like to hear your view on this, is that CERB is great. I think it's a necessary thing right now. I think they got to tighten up the parameters now, now that the emergency is over, you know, that shock of things. I think they got to tighten it up. But I don't see them investing in business. That's what no. drives an economy is that small Agreed. business, you know? Agreed. And yeah. you, you put money in people's jeans, but what are they going to do with it? They're, you know, if, if there's nowhere to spend it, you know, yeah. you, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I 100% agree with you, Patrick. And it comes back to my point about Canada's lagging productivity. And, and why, why do we lag in productivity? Well, the reason why is because there's really no incentives for businesses to really invest in, in, in capital, in equipment, in technologies, and things like that to drive productivity growth. And it comes back down to some gov you know, government policies where you know, rather than create incentives for businesses to come back and invest, give them tax credits for accelerated depreciation on things, tax credits for being able to, you know, go into research and development, giving small business loans to, to accelerate that sort of stuff. The money is more fixed, in my opinion, to plugging holes and giving handouts. And you know what? It's politics, as we said before, and it really depends on who your constituents are and, you know, how people are, are looking at it. But I think that's the real concern here is that the policy environment, at least in Canada, has not been conducive enough to really drive productivity growth, business investment, and all the things that you need to get an economy rolling and self-sustaining. Uh, I, I feel like, and, and it's not been a bad thing because it's been great for, for, for real estate investors because we're riding a moment, momentum train. 
But I feel like government policies have been driven primarily by propping up population growth and propping up the ability for consumers just to go out and spend and give them a job, let them spend like crazy, take that middle-class lifestyle, buy a home, uh, give them easy credit, and just drive that agenda forward. And that's why, you know, this is a subject for another conversation, but that's why I think there's a very big disconnect in the price of housing in Canada's biggest cities from underlying fundamentals. Uh, you know, any metric that you look, whether it's price to income or, or price to rent ratios or any sort of uh, valuation gauge, shows that prices have been pushed up beyond where their fundamentals should be. And I think part of the reason why is exactly that, that the policy environment has created that sort of situation, both on the demand side, but also on the supply side as well, about where housing is being provided and things like that. You know, we got to look provincially and, you know, certainly regionally as real estate investors as to what's going on. You know, we talk about businesses being shut down. We now know that, you know, lots, uh, you know, I did a, a really kind of Twitter you know, hokey kind of poll, you know, who's going back to work? Like, who's going to be going back to their office? And, you know, rough numbers where 50% are not going back to the office, yeah, yeah. 20% aren't sure, you know, yeah. and others are already in that office environment. So when I look at, you know, restaurants, you know, possibly shutting down, others will start up, uh, we think, uh, if assuming they can make it profitable, given the conditions and, you know, the opening conditions, working conditions, some retail is going to shut down. My concern lives in, you know, how does a municipality, how does a city, it's one thing to Toronto, Vancouver, you know, major centers in Canada, probably the feds will come in and support those cities with whatever funding, but you're going to lose a large tax base. You know, what are these smaller centers going to do when all of a sudden, you know, I, I read an article just today about Jasper National Park. You know, you look at Jasper as a town, depending on like, where's that tax there coming isn't. from? You know, is the, of course, they're, you know, they're in the middle of a national park. You know, is the feds going to write them a check? I don't know. But those are the concerns. And where does that get eaten up? It's got to be taxed somewhere, I'm assuming, you know. Uh, the tax thing is going to be an interesting situation for sure. I mean, cities are bankrupt right now because of the situation. I'm sure, like you said, the provinces and stuff will download back to some of these cities to keep them afloat. But the money's got to come from somewhere. Where? And you're going to be printing money, which we're doing because we have quantitative easing now in Canada. But the government can just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing, which is what we're doing. I mean, we had a fiscal cushion for a rainy day. Uh, this is obviously a rainy day in a pandemic, uh, but I feel like there's no end in sight to this sort of stuff. And, it, it, you know, again, I don't want to be a doom and gloomer, but as long as we're comfortable running deficits and filling in holes with government money, along the lines, as long as the financial markets are going to be willing to underwrite that and keep bond yields low, at some point, there's going to be a pay the piper. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's going to mean higher taxes mm -hmm. and a vicious circle of more taxes was going to, you know, have a, a negative impact again on businesses where, you know, the incentive to invest isn't there. Maybe that doesn't play out. Maybe that's just the dire situation. And we have this productivity renaissance. I mean, one of the great things, you know, you touched about working from home and, and things that are going on. But I think one of the great things that's going to come out of this pandemic is the innovation that, that could potentially happen to drive something different. Uh, whether it's using technology for people to work and to connect, or more importantly, technology in the medical field. And these innovations could spur a productivity jump that could help to drive incomes, could help to move the, the, the world forward. And 
and in Canada specifically, if, if, if these things come to pass. But I think the greater risk right now is just that tax implication, this, this huge bill that we're going to have if we don't create a system whereby it's going to be funded by itself rather than just government doing everything. What we have to look at is, you know, I'm not looking, I don't want to look at all of this through rose-colored glasses, but I also, I'm not doom and glooming it. I think we have to deal with what is. We're still actually lacking a lot of information. It, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the feds are kind of, you know, using an eyedropper to drop out, you know, real information. So it's tough to get a handle on what is really happening. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a real estate investor, I'm really working hard to look into the future, putting all the pieces of the puzzle together to come, you know, really trying to be critical in, in, you know, be a critical thinker in what I see. But I, I, I 100% believe that, innovation is going to create a whole different set of opportunities that we don't even anticipate. We, we can't possibly, you know, you, because people are people and they just, there's some pretty smart people out there that are going to go, Hey, we can do this and we can put this. And I really count on that. I'm not that smart, but I really do believe in human beings in terms of their innovation, their, their desire to survive and thrive in these kind of economic times. So I, I don't think we can anticipate that other than to say, here's what we're dealing with. Here's what we see happening. And to the point of where does the economy going to go, uh, whether it's a W, whether it's a U, we know it's going to be kind of a little hairy carry for a while. You know, it's going to mm-hmm. be a, a bit frightening and we're going to have to really pay attention to what's going on. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, I think what's going to be difficult in this environment is people just are assuming at some point we go back to February 2020 or January 2020 where all of a sudden we go back to the world we used to know. I don't believe that's going to be the case. And we're seeing indications of that everywhere. You know, you talk about working from home. This whole idea of working from home could realign fundamentally where people live at the end of the day. If I don't have to commute, you know, an hour a day into a downtown node, pay lots of parking, go into, you know, a a big public transit area to work, and I can work from my home out in an exurb somewhere outside of the city, why why would I do that? You know, and earn the same income and and live a different sort of lifestyle. And I think fundamentally people are understanding that, but I also think fundamentally companies understand that too. And so the paradigm shift that that comes from this could be quite significant for where people live, real estate prices, things like that. Similarly, you know, I, I look at the retail sector. I you know we talk about residential retail. But I look at retail real estate and uh, sorry, residential real estate. But if I look at retail real estate, there is a lot of destruction that's happening in terms of enclosed malls. And I think fundamentally, a lot of people are feeling like, do I really need to go to a mall anymore? Or am I getting any experience on that? And so the retail is shifting online. Uh, but you're also seeing that the return of you know this curbside pickup and street front and a little bit more. I, I think they're, you know, the heart and soul of where communities start to become are these little bubbles, not just in a downtown core, but in some of these smaller markets with a bubble, with local retail, local people. And that may be where we're headed. I see that there's, you know, these are the things that we want to watch for, right? Which, to your point, is that you look at retail, you look at how re- retail can operate going forward. Where are people going to want to live you know, we've had these conversations a couple of times now with, you look at Toronto, for example, 
Although I heard somebody say there was actually traffic jams happening in the past few days, uh, which was because well, they shut the roads down. <laughs> <laughs> they were off the charts before, or they were uh, yeah. you know, they were empty before. And anyways, they've opened it up, and immediately there's some traffic. But you know, people are afraid to um, travel rapid transit. They're afraid to get on public transportation. Uh, they have some fear around that. Uh, that's going to be, who knows how long that's going to last and, and continue on. Is it really going to be that way until a vaccine comes out yet to be seen? Uh, lots of people buy into COVID. Lots of people say bullshit, you know, like who knows what it really is. You know, that's yeah. for each of us to decide on our own. Yeah. But there is a, a strong argument for the boomers that once thought that working, living and working downtown would be cool and or having some, you know, living downtown uh, as a as a lifestyle in, in a retired world, you know, walkability and, you know, being in that energy. And now boomers are going, I'm out. Like, I don't want to, you know, that you've got riots going on, you've got prot- protests going on, the chance of a second wave of COVID. Uh, I'm talking to some of my realtor uh, connections and they're actually saying they're seeing a demand start to increase for smaller centers and Absolutely. and certainly yeah. country living, right? Yeah. And yeah. and are you are you seeing some of that as well, Carl, in in what you're investigating? Absolutely. I, I, you know what's interesting to that point about people moving further out in, into the smaller cities and smaller areas. That was actually a trend that was happening before this pandemic. Oh, interesting. We, we did actually start seeing movement. Like if you actually look at population statistics. For migration inside of Canada, inside of Toronto, net outflows of people who are from Toronto would go from Toronto to outside of the greater Toronto area. The thing that kept population growing in Toronto was population growth for people, immigrants coming into the city from other countries, from other provinces, that sort of thing. But net net, there was always an outflow of people from Toronto to other cities. And we've seen that growth happening. And I think part of that is a backlash against affordability. Part of that is a backlash against the kind of quality of life that people are driving. Um, you know, this pandemic, if it's reinforced, one thing I was talking to a number of millennial uh, colleagues of mine at my old job, and one of the things that's very difficult for a lot of them is to be confined uh, and socially isolate in 500 square feet. There's no sense of community there. It, it, it is like four walls and being trapped. And when your community is the whole city and stuff like that, it, it you know that that whole notion falls apart. And so a number of them you know took off and went to see mom and dad out in the burbs. Uh, I do think this is going to be reinforcing that trend where people are going to start to realize that I don't need this city sort of living in order to have at least a fulfilling life. Now that's not to say everyone's doing it because there are always going to be people who are going to enjoy being in the city and, and it'll be highly demographic too. Young people always are attracted to living downtown. But I, but I think on net, technology is going to provide the platform and the opportunity for people to have a choice about where they want to live so that they're not forced into living. What I think urban planners are trying to do is high-density, transit-oriented sort of living, which which is great on the surface, and, and there are lots of pluses for it. But you know the negatives, at least in the last 10 years, have not been addressed properly uh, about that sort of living. Yeah, and I think we have to pay really close attention to that trend. And 
it's interesting, you know, we talk about millennials. I mean, they're, that age group, even when it comes to sick overall or COVID, are they, you know, is COVID exposure a big issue for them? It's not as big. I mean, at that age, we were all pretty bulletproof anyways, right? You know, we weren't worried about that kind of stuff. And and so few are. I think you're going to see that trend. And I really do, when you look, you know, I can't imagine, you know, I'm, I, I live in the country and, and we've got lots of space and all of the stuff. Stephanie, my wife and I are both self-employed kind of individuals. We work from home often. And I can't imagine, you know, what's going on for some people who are living in a condo environment where they've got a roommate and or a significant other that they're actually locked down trying to have a conversation on a Zoom meeting because that's what's required. And then, you know, add to that even some families, because I've talked to some RAIN members who are, you know, working from home. Now they're working home from home with their significant other and three kids or two kids. You know, it's like. Oh my gosh! And I know you've got a uh, you get a young daughter, I think, and a five year old, yeah, five year exactly. old, right? Well, yeah. at least that's an age. Well, they're still demanding of time, but at least you can very have, demanding. Yeah, <laughs> you have some conversation with them, uh, maybe talk about of uh, you know knocking your door down on any at any given time. But so those are all you know. We look at the environment we need to set ourselves up to succeed, and you know that's really the key. Or can you know people are going to have to adapt, and they're going to have yeah. to say now. What's the environment I have to create given the new conditions that I'm facing? You know, how do yeah. I make this work? And I think, yeah. you know, 500 square foot condos and 800 square foot condos are going to be pretty tough to make work if you're with somebody else. I agree. And, and I think, to be honest, you know, that was the realm of some small investors. I mean, they, the investors buy these things as a commodity to, to kind of see the price go up. And if I can be cash flow neutral by getting a renter in there, that works. And, and I think, you know, because the rental market has been so tight in Toronto, you, you've been able to kind of drive rents up to a certain level where people were willing to pay. But, you know, you do the math on this, and I don't want to get into math, but, you know, you start doing the math and there's a ceiling as to how far you can push rents on a 500 square foot condo. And, and I think, especially now when people see that kind of quality of life and, and what's out there, Maybe that doesn't happen anymore. So, you know, I think the guys that, that may suffer a little bit are the ones that have invested in, in that space mm-hmm. where things start to, to shift. But yeah, I, I, I think, you know, we, we were saying, you know, early on that if you looked at where housing supply is deficient in Canada, it's in the mushy middle, somewhere where there's an opportunity for people to live, you know, maybe they don't want a big 3,000 square foot house out in the, in the suburbs, or they don't want, you know, a big country yard with, you know, 50 acres that you have to look after. But a lot of people don't want to be living in high density housing. They want to have maybe something smaller, but somewhere in located in, in a suburban area or, or an exurban area. But there's been no incentives for developers to be able to deliver that sort of product. And so that's that mushy middle that, or that, that, that middle part that I think is going to see, you know, the, de- the demographic pressure is going to continue to push for that. And somewhere along the line, the real estate community is going to need to find a way to provide that sort of housing. And to me, the only way they're going to do that is if there's government policy in place to create incentives for them to want to do it. Well, I think, yeah, exactly. And I think landlords, rental housing providers in, is the term that we use is it's important for them to consider that when they have units, it used to be, well, we need, you know, you know, aside from we need, you know, the quartz countertop or, you know, yeah. the, the stainless steel appliances, I think we have to consider that now you're going to have to have 
you know, an alcove at least where, you know, somebody can set up their computer and, you know, maybe they paint yeah. a wall green. So you have a green screen, you know, automatic screen, yeah. green, yeah, green screen drop uh, backdrop. I don't know, but we're going to have to, you know, evolve and move to accommodate new tenants. When you look at rents, you know, we haven't talked about it and I still want to touch, ba- gosh, there's so many things I want to talk about with you, Carl. So, let, you know, I want to touch on immigration. I want to talk uh, uh, talk about what CMHC just did, you know, and with, a, with you know, especially on the multifamily policies that they changed, you know, not being able to take equity out, et cetera. But when you look at the overall housing market and rental market, you know, we can talk about Ontario. Um, I mean, there's more to, you know, the world than GTA, but... Where do you see even Vancouver, you know, the major centers, where do you see rents going? Do you see, given what's happening, uh, I don't know, it's it's a tough read, right? I see more renters starting to happen because, of, you know, everything from job market to what it takes to get financing these days, I think people are going to have to, you know, be more renters. I, I see people actually having to sell their home to liquidate perhaps, but then they're going to become renters. I don't know, there's a lot of different scenarios, but how do you see it? Here's the thing, you know, I was watching the trends before the pandemic happened and and two things that are that are similar for both Toronto and Vancouver is that, you know, we got you're absolutely right. Demand is very strong. Um, People just can't afford to live in these cities and renting has been an option. And, you know, the vacancy rates in in any purpose built market has been very tight. And so rents continue to move higher and higher there. But two things were happening just before we got into this pandemic. The first thing is that for the first time in a long while, we started to see a lot more purpose-built rental supply coming onto the market. The developers were actually building, uh, I think the last stat I saw was the most number of you know, purpose-built rental units being developed in, in the cores since I think it was the early 1990s, late 80s. So there, you know, obviously, and, and there are pension funds and people like my former employer who who were doing it because there was an economic incentive because the rents were were moving up. So so we have a lot of supply in that pipeline. We have a lot of shadow supply as well, as I mentioned, you know, earlier about condo investors. You know, most of what's being bought, you know, call it up to 50 percent, depending on what statistic you look at in the condo market, is bought by investors who put that back onto the shadow rental market. So there is there in my mind, there's a lot of supply that's in the pipeline that will be arriving in the next few years uh, that will help to take some of the edge off of the, the, the rental markets and loosen things up. To that extent, even in Toronto, I've started to notice uh, from building to building and region to region that you are starting to see rents start to cool a little bit. Um, they're not certainly rising nearly as fast as they were. I mean, two years ago, they were rising 10% year over year. So you're starting to see a little bit of that rental flattening growth happen. And in my mind, I think that's probably because we're going to see a little bit more supply coming onto the market, a little bit more choice. But then you add in now the pandemic effect, because one of the things that's happened with the pandemic is population growth. The very driver, you know, immigration that really was pushing rental markets in both Vancouver and Toronto have got the kibosh on them. I mean, we don't have new people coming in right now. and, And I don't know you know, to what extent this is going to continue and what those numbers meant. But at least in Toronto, it was 100,000 people a year coming into the city, you know, in in those numbers fuel demand because somebody, all those people need a place to live. That may be a bit of an issue. The other factor on the demand side that I think also could, could you know, pull back demand is the fact that we do have this job market that has high unemployment right now, particularly in jobs where people who tend to rent working. And, and if those guys have trouble 
you know, getting getting jobs back, getting the ability to to work back, then demand, you know, may start to ebb. So rather than forming, you know, two households where one each household goes out and demands a, an apartment building or wants to rent, people could double up, and so it's one household instead of two. So that demand impact starts to flow through. So long story short, I I, I feel like in the near term we may see rents come down a little bit. And, and that's a narrative that, that makes sense because deflation is happening as this economy gets you know, hit. And so there may be some rent deflation happening. Long term, I do think rents will start to bounce back. They may have like an average growth of about 2% or you know, somewhere around in an inflationary growth. And I still think renting is going to be an option for many people as long as these cities are unaffordable. But, but there will be changes will be changes as to the kind of things that people want to rent, where they want to live, uh, and whether some product, you know, and we saw this before, you know, you create product that's shoebox condos in the middle of the downtown core. As time goes by and preferences change, these things could become the new, you know, shanty towns, the Jamestowns of, the, uh, uh, of our city skylines, uh, because they're not built for where people's preferences are long-term. So I'm a little concerned about that long-term. Yeah, I agree. You know, the immigration part of it is a big, big deal for Canada because, you know, we we had so many coming into Canada that shut down. We don't know when that's going to fire up again, uh, given the fact that the potential, if COVID is the thing that they're saying it is, then, you know, if, if we have another outbreak because we're letting immigrants into Canada and, you know, they're atypical, they're walking in with, you know, no fever and they're not testing or whatever the case is. I mean, it's, so it's a big deal, right? I think immigration is going to have to slow down. I think that's just going to be uh, expected by the general public for their safety. But you talk about uh, deflationary kind of time. You know, when I look at liquidity being pumped in and 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 in a government you know really printing money like nonstop and for Canada I mean uh, if we hit a trillion which is some talk about that being a given I, you know I don't know what your view of that is but you know that's a lot of dough for a population of 36 million or 33 million whatever the hell we are I mean we're I mean I, I've often said it we're, I mean we're not even a rounding error in the big picture like we you know Canada is you know, a small. beautiful place, yeah. it's safe. But we really see how small we are when we start looking at a global picture and, and the impact. So my concern is with, you know, in, in the research I've done, Carl, is around the inevitable hyperinflation, and, and especially in some sectors. Um, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? I think inflation is going to be a very interesting story. In the near term, I, I, and we saw it through gas prices right now, you know, when there's an excess hit to the economy, a shock, and it opens up excess capacity, prices start to come off. And so it wasn't surprising, you know, right in the heart of the social distancing pandemic period, um, we saw gas prices fall quite, quite dramatically. That's, that's an analogy for the entire economy. I think prices get hit because there's a big demand side shock. So yeah, in the near term, there's that. But I do think to your point, that all of this excess cash, but also changes in the way the economy needs to work. Um, businesses need to institute new things like putting plexiglass up and you know, people need all of these PPE things to work. You know, restaurants will need to in- institute certain factors. They can't run at the same capacity they did before. All of these things are inflationary in my mind. Mm-hmm. And that kind of inflationary, that's just on the ground inflation, will sure. get passed on to consumers through higher prices. Then the point being about the amount of money that we're printing, 
Absolutely. When, when you think about the money that we're printing on, on the monetary side, coupled with the fiscal side expansion, the amount of spending that the government is doing, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a Keynesian economist by any stretch of the imagination, but most tenants of economics say that when you have that much stimulus happening, you're going to start to create price inflation and, 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 and inflation. Where I do believe some of that inflation has all happened, and we saw this after the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, is in asset prices. And all that excess cash, you know, for better or worse, ended up in investors' hands, and they were able to bid up asset prices. And when I say asset prices, I mean stock prices, real estate prices, investable assets. And so if you look at the stock market, and now we talk, we're talking real estate, and, and I talked about the disconnect between prices and fundamentals, the stock market's even worse. It's I way mean, disconnected. <laughs> it's completely disconnected. Yeah. And, you know, I look at the stock market today and, you know, uh, NASDAQ is back up to where it was. It's at a record high. Yeah. Um, and, and granted, I understand some of that because there's a lot of tech stocks that are driving innovation, Amazon, one of them, but, yeah. you know, a lot of them that are doing that. But I think that's where this inflationary sort of pressure comes from is in these asset prices, the lots of money chasing limited goods, and then also these, you know, changes that are going to be instituted. That, but when I say inflation, I don't mean you know hyperinflation mm -hmm. in like Zimbabwe. And yeah. you know, it, it, it's like five percent sort of inflation year over year growth as opposed to the one to two percent environment that we've been in. Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I've found this whole thing quite fascinating, and and but it is very difficult to put all the parts of pieces of this puzzle together to come to you know what the picture is going to look like. And uh, but it has been very fascinating because there's historical stuff, but there's never anything you can't compare it. I mean, there's lots of historical data, you know, from depression to Spanish flu and, you know, ups and downs and, you know, you know, economic crises over the years. And I'm finding that in Canada, particularly, we don't know the impact of what's going on in the U.S. and what it'll mean to us either. And a lot of the news that we're getting is, is kind of it gets a little gray because it's we're not the U.S., we're Canada. But there, there is a correlation in some regards, but it's hard to you know differentiate from that. But let's let's just talk a little bit about um, where you see in, in terms of real estate. I think everybody agrees that commercial real estate is going to some sectors of commercial real estate are going to get their ass handed to them. There's just I, I don't see how they can avoid that. There's just people not going back to work. Their businesses that are going to have to downscale. To me, retail, retail is the is the case in point. I I just don't see. Retail was already on its knees and enclosed retail, not 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 essential or grocery anchored retail, but yeah. just regular retail. And it was on its knees before this. And now this, it's the death knell as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that, that's going to be a tough one. You know, I, I have a lot of, uh, you know, concern for, let's say, Calgary. You know, in Calgary downtown, was, <sighs> I mean, it was a gro oh. it was a ghost town and, you know, downtown core in terms of businesses being down there to begin with. I mean, there what was their vacancy? 25 or 30 percent, I think? You yeah, it peaked at about 27 yeah. percent. Managed to come down a little bit down to 22, 23 percent. And then it popped back up again over this last round. You know, we can talk Calgary office if you want, but I'm I'm not hopeful there. There's no good uh, news I, in that one. I, no good news in that one. I don't think the energy sector, you know, despite everything, the government trying to you know build a pipeline or support the industries, fundamentally in the world, I think you know energy and especially the type of energy that we have is going to be scrutinized a lot more. Um, so there, there's there's that issue. There's also consolidation that's happened in, in, in our business, in, in our oil sector. So I think that's going to, you know, the demand side of the equation on that has, has really contracted. And, and long term, 
I don't believe there's going to be a point in time where, well, and I could be wrong because anything can happen, an asteroid can happen, but I don't think there's going to be a point in time where oil prices are going to get to a point that it's economic for our Canadian oil and gas companies to start capital investing again. And that capital investment, whether it's to you know new equipment, new investment to build and bring more to capacity uh, and hiring is not going to happen. They're not going to need all that office space. And, and one of the last, you know, the other issues with Calgary's office market is when you look at the size of their office buildings and you compare it to say Vancouver or you know, some other smaller markets like Winnipeg, the floor plates in the buildings in Calgary are huge. Yeah. They're massive. Yeah. They're designed for giant oil companies where you know spending on office space was just a check mark on, on, on their on their income statement. And so with that happening, there is so much excess capacity with some of these offices uh, that I don't know what the, to me, fundamentally, the only way you get a vacancy rate back down to 10% in that market is to take out the stock, you know, get rid of the, the inventory yeah. and, and convert it to something else. There is no good news there. And, and the sad part of that is they've already experienced it, but I think, you know, Calgary is going to continue to feel the pain in a municipal tax base that they're going to have to do to drive the pick up the infrastructure costs, you know, and there, I think the, you know, Edmonton, Calgary, I mean, there's lots of centers. I'm using Western Canada along the way, but, you know, even, you know, coming to BC, you look at even a, an Abbotsford, a mission, you know, these smaller centers are still going to be a struggle from an infrastructure point of view and in, in getting the funding they need to, you know, to continue to operate. And that can only be taken up in property taxes, I think, and or yep. whatever surcharges that, that might occur. What's your thoughts on on multifamily uh, in the world of multifamily? There's a strong argument that multifamily is actually going to uh, there's going to be a resurgence of interest in multifamily. Not that there, I don't think it ever fell off, but I mean, I think it's even going to uh, get uh, tighter uh, based on demand and affordability, and and you know from from a tenant profile point of view. But from an investor point of view, what are you seeing? And and what do you think is going to happen now? I mean, for the REITs, it's not a big deal, maybe. But you look at what CMHC did. And so for the smaller investors, you know, like that whole incentive to buy low, you know, get rents up, re, you know, yeah. repurpose, do all the stuff that, you know, investors do and then refinance. I mean, that's off the table right now. So with CMHC. So what's your what's your read on all of that, Carl? Well, uh, you know, I, I come back to that. I think I think the speculative investing that you just talked about in the multifamily market is it CMHC absolutely wants to put the kibosh on it. And, and you know, they're dressing it up with mortgage restrictions and things like that. But I think what they're really doing is trying to kill the speculation because that's financially destabilizing to the financial system. Mm. Um, so I think that's that's an underlying thing. You know, when you talk about the rates, whether you talk about rates uh, or you know, institutional real estate investors like pension funds, they do see very strong value in multifamily. And we're talking about buying entire buildings as opposed to units. Sure. Uh, because that cash flow, people always need a place to live. They need to rent. Occupancy has always been up at like 97, 98% outside of Alberta. Um, you know, BC and Ontario, you, you have very strong occupancy rates. Uh, that cash flow is pretty locked in. And one of the issues that they've always had is because the occupancy has been so tight in those markets is that you can't even get rent growth because you need to get a tenant out of the building to be able to reset your rents. And, and that hasn't been, it hasn't been easy to do. But I, I, I think institutions, uh, the, the REITs, they all see the value in, in, the, in that sector. But then I come back to my whole question about where people are going to want to live 
where is the multifamily buildings that you want to hold? Uh, because right now, the multifamily buildings that you have, say, in downtown Toronto, their, their values are just astronomical. And there is a disconnect there between the underlying income that you're getting from these properties and, and the values that are there. So there has to be a little bit of a reset, I feel. Uh, and that reset may come over this time period because of the inability for some landlords to be able to collect rent in, in some of these multifamily buildings. When you consider, you know, what CMHC has done here, when you look at, you know, some of the tightening of CMHC uh, qualification, you know, I mean, obviously CMHC, but also in the banks are getting tighter. You know, you're you're having a more difficult time getting approval for mortgages because of, you know, they're even having trouble, you know, doing CMAs or doing, uh, uh, you know, uh, valuations of a property. How much of that is, do you just, what are the banks trying to do? Is there is there something in behind the scenes that you think the banks are trying to do in terms of protecting liquidity or protect you know in their risk mitigation? What do you what is the bank thinking right now? I think for what CMHC, CMHC is doing, and in line with OTSI, who is the over oversight for for you know the financial condition, I think what they are doing is putting safeguards in to protect the financial system, the mortgage market given that there were already stresses underlying the, the market there and they are putting safeguards there to prevent the kind of speculative or risky behavior that could take down the system. As far as the chartered banks go, um, you know, I've, I've always maintained that the chartered banks are going to be fine. Their, their portfolio, if they're at risk, if there's a problem with their insured product, they get insurance paid to them. Mm. These these products go out and they go back to CMHC and it's the government's problem. The banks are fine because they get they have the insurance on this on the, that in their portfolio. Personally, I mean, just from my perspective, I think the banks are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they have as much risk on their in their portfolio uh, than than perhaps some of the doomsdayers in the U.S. were saying. You know, this is the subprime crisis and everything else, but it does fall back on CMHC. And it does fall back on the on the government. Now, the mortgage insurance fund that that CMHC has is massive, and you know they're sitting on a massive asset there, so they can help fill the hole if something ever did happen. But I think it's very prudent, and OTSI has been very prudent to kind of you know talk about these risks in the market. And I think it's very prudent that CMHC is continuing to do this mm-hmm. because they don't want a calamity that destabilizes the entire financial system if something does happen. Because the shock waves are going to be there. Uh, and and for some of those, you know, for some of the banks, there there will take some stuff on the chin, you know. But it, but it, it's perception that's going to have the problem, right? And then it ripples through into the entire market after. Yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, just as you brought this up, I'm also going on top of all the multifamily and the CMHC and all the rest of it. Then you've got the actual liability insurance issues that are starting to rear their heads with multifamily units and and commercial as well. I mean, those are creating some challenges. So I don't know, Carl, as we start to kind of wind down here a little bit and, uh, you know, it's like this is pretty convoluted. Like what's our takeaways from here today? You know, like when I look at this. Uh, you know, as an economist, what what are what are you know what would should we be sharing with listeners? You know, our our we're relatively we're going to remain optimistic because it's our nature. I mean, it's, we look at and we still have a lot of confidence in people's ability to innovate and business owners and real estate investors overall. But what are you if you're guiding your clients today? You know, even your you know your larger investor companies that are looking at it. What's Carl Gomez saying? What are you what are you telling them? Well, I think I think the first thing we could say, and it, you know, it was our conversation today, 
this is probably one of the most um, uncertain worlds we've lived in maybe in decades, if, if not centuries. There is so much, so many financial things that are up in the air, so many things about the economy, so many things about where things are moving. It's hard to even I, you know, have a grasp as to where things are going in, in that kind of environment. We can all talk like, like, you know, like economists and think maybe we're going to do that, but everybody's crystal ball is very fuzzy right now. That, so that being said, with all that uncertainty, the one thing that you need to do, and at least you know personally in a household, you should do this, whether you're a big company or, a, or an institution, is shore up your, your, your cash, know where your, where your financial positions are, and be ready for opportunity when it's there so that you have the opportunity to draw it up. But don't be speculative. Don't be uh, taking too big a risk right now. I mean, risk... I mean, lots of people should be take risk because there's big opportunity. But again, with that uncertainty, there's a high price. I mean, you could be really right up there or you could be really right down there. So, you know, the, the, the advice I'd say is, you know, take calculated risk where you can, but make sure you have your financial ammunition and your balance sheet and everything in check for, for this environment because things are so uncertain and we don't know which way it's going to go. Carl, you know, there's uh, we're going to change topics. So thank you sure. for that. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, but in the in the spirit of the everyday millionaire and in the context of it, you know, seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. I mean, you've got a great track record. You've done some really cool thing. Uh, I've always enjoyed having you on the stage. And, and, you know, to the degree I can, I kind of follow what you've got going on and your thought process. So I thank you for your uh, insights today. But I want to talk a little bit about you. And, and, and I know you're working history and stuff, but Carl, let's, let's face it, you know, economists are cool, but how, <laughs> but, but really it's, they're, they're like, to me, they're kind of like in that, in line with accountants. So, and yeah. accountants are cool too, but it's that, that thought process, how, how the hell did, you know, being economist come up for you? You know, you're, you're still a young man, relatively young man, I mean, or very young man, uh, but how did that all show up for you? Uh, you know, I guess growing up for me, I always had an interest in business, how the way the world worked, uh, all of that sort of stuff. Um, nobody, I don't think anybody thinks all of a sudden one day when they're 10 years old, I want to be an economist. Uh, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't work out that way. It's not really one of those cool careers. I know I've tried to push it on my daughter. She has no idea what it is. And she's five. Uh, but, but I think what, what really happens is you start, you know, exploring the economics and the world of how it explains the way the world works. And I think what I latched on there is rather than it being, you know, a, a subject matter where it's fuzzy, it's grainy, it's, you know, it's conjecture based on things. There's a, there's, there are models there are a basis for things to explain how the way the world works. And so I gravitated to that. I like the, I like the way macroeconomics explain the bigger picture. I like the way microeconomics can talk about, you know, if somebody's buying a car, you know, what are the dynamics there in terms of how, you know, what the pricing is going to be, things like that. Uh, so something about my personality being, you know, a little bit more analytical, a little bit more, um, you know, thoughtful about, you know, how I approach things, economics was a good fit for me. And, and then, of course, the other side of that is it's a mathematically based uh, background. And, and I was always good at math. It came easy to me. And so, you know, sitting in an economics class, it was just easy to, to, to get by. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man, I, I'm so envious of people that have this thing called a gift for math, you know, like, 
because it's just not my thing. I, I, <laughs> I, math has never been my thing. So I'm always a little bit envious when somebody says, well, I just found math really easy. Are you kidding sure. me right now? Is that possible? Well, good for you. But where did you, uh, you know, what was your background as a kid growing up? Were your parents entrepreneurial? Were your parents, what was, what was the background with your parents in terms of how you even ended up yeah. going to university and school and that kind of stuff? Well, you know, my parents were, you know, it's an interesting history because my parents emigrated to Canada in 1973, 1974. Uh, they moved from Nairobi, Kenya, mm. uh, in East Africa. Uh, and, and they were a part of a, you know, a broad group of people who, who, who left there because of changes politically that, that forced a lot of, you know, Asians and other people who were in, in natives who lived there to, to, to leave. And they came to Canada. And my, you know, my, my parents, you know, had educations. They were well-educated. My, my parents were, my dad worked in a professional job as an accountant, actually. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, um, he took a job here as an accountant. My mom was a hairdresser and she took a job as a, in a hairdressing salon. So they were very, you know, working class, you know, hardworking people. Uh, they bought a house right away, you know, and I grew up that way with very hardworking parents who provided for the kids. I have three kids in their family. And, you know, my mom didn't like working for other people. So she started her own hair salon and had, had an entrepreneurial bent to her that way. Uh, my dad just worked at the same job for 40 years, uh, yeah. <laughs> collected his pension one day and, and walked away. Um, very, very, you know, old school, you sure. know, st- straight up. But I think, you know, watching them, one of the things that I always wanted was I always aspired for more. And I always thought, you know, my parents had secondary education, but probably didn't go as it didn't go as far as I did with a master's degree and things like that. But, you know, like I think most immigrant children, you know, you, you aspire, you aspire for more and your parents want you to do more. And so I think I, I you know, I definitely pushed that, uh, you know, and trying to, to achieve that. And, and I'm happy to say at least... Over over the course of my career, I feel like I kind of done that, and you know, you get back to your family, and I try to get back to my family all the time and support them. You do that. Yeah. Now, have you got siblings? I do. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Right. Are they economists yeah. or accountants? Or no. They, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, and I'll, I'll put this out there. You know, the interesting thing about myself and my family is we're very, we're a very artistic family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my mom being a hairdresser, you know, she was always into fashion and, uh, and that sort of thing. But we were always into music and art and production and video and things like that. Uh, I play a number of different instruments. I'm a guitarist. Uh, I sing. I used to play in a band. Uh, my brother is the same way. He's he's into all of that, and my sister was all into that as well. So it turns out, you know, my brother ended up. He plays gigs uh, a lot. He's mm-hmm. married. He has a kid, but he plays in in yeah, at nighttime. He does these gigs and plays in different uh, hotels. And well, yeah. he did before this pandemic, yeah, anyways. Sure. Uh, but he has a very strong musical career that way. And, and works part-time in marketing and brand promotion within the music industry. Sure. And, and my sister works for Apple, uh, not, not in store, but she actually works for Apple Education. But mm-hmm. she does all of the uh, promotional marketing material uh, because she has a background in radio and television production. So she is a very good editor and producer uh, in, 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 te- in a technical AV level. So long story short, they're in 
little bit more artistic careers than I am, but that's definitely where where, where their bent is. Well, yeah. see, but that's, you see, you're a bit of an anomaly, right? Because you're an economist, but you're like a cool economist. Like you got all this musical <laughs> talent, you sing, you got some background and all that, you know, so you, you're not, you're, you know, you're not a traditional, uh, you know, view of economists, not that I know a lot of them, but I know a number of them. And uh, so, you know, you know, Carl, you're pretty cool when it comes to being an economist. I always admire, you know, the, the thought process around immigrants moving to a country from another country, you know, like it, 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 it's actually blows my mind to what it takes. And, you know, Canada's, you know, really, really, I mean, you know, I mean, we're a melding plot, a pot of different cultures that have moved to Canada. I mean, people coming with very little or nothing because they've, you know, had to leave their country. I mean, just thought of that, the, the thought of that is, is a little even overwhelming for me to think about, God, I don't know if I could pull that off. But of course, I guess at some level you have to, right? That that is where that survival and or innovation lives. I mean, think about the immigrants that came to Canada and have made a huge difference to Canada because of what they've done in building their businesses and driving employment and all this stuff. It's pretty it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Oh, I agree. I mean, it, the immigrant story, especially, you know, when people come, you know, with, with very little and have to, you know, push themselves. I, I you know, I, I stand in admiration of that because, you know, when I, you think about my my life and I'm lucky my parents did that, but I never had to think about leaving, moving to another country, starting, you know, from scratch and trying to build a life. You know, I had a cushion behind it to be able to do that. And so, the, you know, those immigration stories are always wonderful to hear. Uh, always amazing to see how people are doing that. I think, you know, dovetailing that if Canada continued to be able to target entrepreneurial immigrants and people who are, you know, willing to invest in, and do that, because there are a lot of them that, that, that do, that would be a great thing for us. And, and, you know, I think, you know, that's the great thing about Canada's immigration policy is we are targeting that and we are pushing that. It's not just immigration for the sake of immigration, uh, but, you know, we need that. Sure. Well, you know, it's, it, we, we talk about Canada and just being as small as it is and what, you know, and, and maybe it's not, a, you know, it's, it's certainly not a, a, you know, an economic force. But, you know, there there is a strong argument now with what's going on that Canada will be actually a flee to safety, given what's happening and people coming because they want to come to a place that is, you know, we, you know, we can, you know, as Canadians, we bitch about politics all the time. That's the nature, you know, weather and politics, what else have we got to complain about and talk about, but, you know, ultimately we, we live in this really beautiful country that is pretty safe, you know, and not, not pretty safe, but very safe. So we, there's a strong argument for that, for sure. You know, you've achieved a lot and, you know, you're the cool Carl and I, and I love that, you know, so, but tell me a little bit about in your own success, you know, how connected are you to, you know, your own personal development, your own, you know, growth personally? Do you, do you spend some time doing that as a mindset? Is that those are conversations that you have? Are you in that kind of space, if you will? Absolutely. And, you know, I have some friends who specialize in that space. And, you know, I think one of the most important things, yeah, I'm, I'm 48 right now and, you know, maybe heading into midlife a little bit. But it's, you know, and partly why I decided to leave my current job is I recognize that you have to be true to yourself and true to your uh, authenticity is something that was very much taught to me. And you can't be something that you're not. And if you try to do it, things will fall apart in your life and around you. And your happiness is at stake with being authentic to yourself. And that's something that I thought with, with this job change 
was the starting point to be able to do that. You know, there was stuff within that that wasn't, I think, authentic to who I was as a professional uh, in, in, in my job, and I wasn't happy. And, and it needed to make that change. And sometimes it's tough to do, right? Because you have obligations and things to do, but, but it, it's the right thing to do. And it makes sense at some point in your career. And, you know, some people call it a midlife crisis because, you know, at that age, but I, but I do think it's, 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 and you're lucky to be at a certain point in your career where you can make those changes and make that happen. Uh, and, and I see that all around me about, you know, how to be more authentic as to how you live and what you do and to be real about it and to, you know, opportunities to create them and not expect them to land on your door. Uh, I think that's the other side of it. You know, that you know what you just stated, one of the bravest things, you know, some people will have to do, and I've had to do it sadly too many times because it's easy to get off track, which is be true to your values, be true to who you are. And, you know, we compromise our values or we compromise our truth. We live out of integrity and it always comes back to bite you in the ass. It comes to bite you in the ass, you know, from in so many different ways, you know, right down to your health and, and wellness, you know, and whether that's mental or emotional, spiritual or physical, you know, there is that. So, you know, thanks for sharing that. That's a brave, brave move. And, and I honor anybody who makes those decisions because I'm sure it was a tough decision for you. Thank you. It absolutely was a tough decision. But I feel like, I mean, in the middle of the pandemic, you know, I was lucky my company gave me a package to be able to do this. You Mm -hmm. know, we worked things out. Uh, But yeah, it it was a tough decision to to do it. And I, I think it's the right one. I feel it's like the right one. You know, I think, oh, you know, it's 100% the right one. You know, I've got some wisdom on you because I'm far older, but it may not feel like it in the moment, but you can never go wrong if you stay true to yourself, follow that path and honor your values. You can't go wrong. You just can't. It may not turn out or it may not look like you think it will look, but it will always work out the way it needs to work out. I mean, and one one of the other lessons, you know, I I talked about authenticity, but I think one of the other lessons I learned, I've been talking to a a friend of mine who's, who's this, you know, uh, he's into this stuff and he's giving me stuff to read and everything. But, you know, sometimes you think you are somebody else and you think when you work in a corporate environment and you work in, inside a, inside a, <laughs> a bureaucratic environment, sure. there's a mold that you think you need to follow yeah. and, and you become that person and you become that personality and you become that mold. And one day you stand back and you say, Hey, that is not me mm-hmm. at all, man. Like, mm-hmm. this is not who I am. Why am I doing this? And it, the why becomes a big question. Why? What, what is motivating you? And that's, that's exactly, I think, for me, where my mindset is at this point. I'm not that person. Yeah. Well, good for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy for you and having that realization and moving on. We need a healthy Carl. Um, so tell me something, you know, in, in that space, Carl, are you a meditator? Are you, do you journal? Do you have a, a routine? Do you run? Do you work out on a regular basis? What's kind of, what do you do to look after yourself that way? I, I love biking. I've been, I've taken up biking a lot more. I've actually, since I quit, lost 20 pounds wow. you know, from work. Oh, you look and great. No, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable that the lifestyle that I was leading before uh, it contributed to, you know, putting on, you know, commuting and sitting in the office all day and eating out and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I've changed my, my way of eating and, and doing all that. I've been biking a lot and getting back into biking. One of the things that I, that I felt like I lost over a period of time when I was in corporate hell <laughs> was music. 
And I love to play guitar and, and love to sing. And, you know, my wife is a musician. I've been connect, reconnected with her to start doing a lot more music while we've been socially distancing and locked up at home. Uh, so we've been doing some of that sort of stuff. And so that's been a, a big part of it. And for me also just reading other stuff, like I love reading and, and it's just such a, a liberation for me, but I've started reading different books and different things that are that are much more interesting than just economic journals and business pages and things like that as well. Well, that's so. awesome. Hey, well, listen, uh, I appreciate your time. We're going to wind down. And I always like to finish with uh, what I call rapid fire questions that sometimes don't get so rapid, but they're, they're fun to have kind of questions. So are you ready for some rapid fire? Let's do it. Okay. What is a, what's a book that you're reading right now or one of your favorite books that you would gift, for, for example? Oh, let's see. Because there's two books and now all of a sudden I just don't remember. Jared Diamond, uh, it's it's about, and I can't remember the name of it now. Mental block. We'll come back yeah. to it. Come back yeah. to it if you think about it, okay? Okay. What's a job that you hate, but you do it anyways because you're good at it? Anything that come to mind? <laughs> the job that I hate, that I do it anyways. Because you're good at it. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Family finances. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Right. Exactly. Uh, do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. If you weren't an economist, was there another profession you'd try? Rock star. Guitarist. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you'd make a good. You'd have to grow your hair, hair a little longer, perhaps. But yeah, I that used to have it that way when I was a kid. But yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. So if heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? You lived your life true to yourself and 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 you helped other people. And and, and I appreciate that. Awesome. Yeah. On a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? Five. Yeah, you're not you're not really weird. You don't come across as being weird. I'm not a weird guy. No, you're not a weird guy. What are you not very good at? Like you're good at math. Like, which kind of, you know, that's my, you know, envy of you. But what are you, so, what are you not very good at? So, you know what I'm not good at is languages. For some reason, I've never been able to pick up other languages. It's, mm. it's, been a, it's been a tough thing. And you would think, you know, math and languages are similar sort of things. But for whatever reason, I just have never been good at it. And I psych myself out with it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah new yeah. languages. Okay. Yeah. Now, you're a musician. So, this is going to be a tough question for you. What's your favorite tune? My, oh, God. <laughs> I know, tough. It changes up. It changes on a daily basis. Um, what is it today? Oh, what was I listening to this morning? A Day in the Life. It's a great tune by the Beatles. Beatles, yeah. Yeah, Day in the Life. Room, desk, or car? What do you clean first? Car. <laughs> it's, but it's probably pretty clean right now because you're not driving yeah. it anymore. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, I keep it buffed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what's your favorite swear word? F. Yeah, Fuck. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I, I just don't know how else anybody can use another one, but it, but it, you know, some right people word. don't. I, you know, I have guests yeah. that go, I don't swear. I go, really? How do you express yourself? Favorite movie? Oh, favorite movie. I got so many, and this this is you're putting me on the spot because. Well, that's what those, that's what I'm saying. They're rapid fire, but sometimes they're not so rapid. You know, all of a sudden I have to you know think back into my catalog of favorite movies. I love Rear Window. I think that's a really great film. Have you ever seen it? No, Jimmy I've never Stewart. seen it. Jimmy Stewart, Rear Window. It's an old, old film. Well, yeah, it's got Jimmy Stewart on it, and it's got to be old, yeah. so that's cool. Um, as far as newer films that that have inspired me, I, I love Castaway. I, I think Tom Hanks' mm, Castaway. That was a was good just, movie. 
That was a calm. great movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Carl, last question. What are you grateful for? I'm grateful for life, health, um, family, and well-being. Um, I think the core stuff you have to be thankful for every day rather than anything else. And, and that's that's ultimately what I'm happy for, especially today when we see this pandemic mm-hmm. and, and all this kind of dislocation around the world. Having that at least behind you and people who love you is most important. Yeah. You know, today, uh, you know, on a daily basis, I look at what I'm grateful for. And when I do my interviews with my podcasts, I'm always grateful for my guests that show up. And so thank you for that. And but today specifically, I I really am grateful for an amazing team of people that are part of Rain. And and I'm so blessed to uh, have the Rain community and the the Rain family, if you will. And today I felt very grateful for that and appreciative of it. And so, Carl, thanks for uh, joining me on the Everyday Millionaire podcast. It's been great to talk economics and try and figure <laughs> this shit out, you know. Yeah, so no kidding. It's been awesome. Patrick, thank you very much. It was fun and great to do. Yeah. So thank you again. Thanks, man. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.